BridgeBank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to those committed to leveraging innovation to make the world a better place. BridgeBank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. BridgeBank, be bold, venture wisely. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio, it was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. Hey, everyone from KQED Public Radio. This is Political Breakdown. I'm Marisa Lagos. And I'm Scott Schaefer. And today on The Breakdown, we're going to dig into voting in California. We want to make sure you've got the most reliable, up-to-date info about how to vote, where to vote, when to vote, who to vote for. No, we're not going to tell them who to vote for. <laughs> Don't tell them who to vote for, Scott. Well, we also want to make sure you understand all the disputes we're hearing about over voting. Um, and in the news more generally, some of them are in California, some of them are national. We will bring in Dan Schnur, a political communications professor, in a little bit. But first, here to unravel the controversy of the week, our very own Guy Marzarati. Guy, welcome to this side of the breakdown. Hey, great to be here. So, okay, you have been covering this dispute that is happening between the Republican Party and Democratic leaders in the state. Um, ballot boxes popped up in uh, some contested congressional districts over the weekend, put there by the state GOP. Tell us what happened, what are they, why is everybody so mad? Right, so this started kind of last weekend when we started seeing photos of these boxes, unofficial ballot drop boxes pop up in Fresno, Los Angeles, Orange County. The state GOP and county Republican parties kind of took responsibility for them. Uh, Alex Padilla, California Secretary of State, Javier Becerra, the state's attorney general, filed this cease and desist letter against the Republican Party. They've basically raised two points against these ballot boxes. One, that some of them were labeled official, even though they were definitely not official. Uh, and two, that this is a violation of the state's ballot collection law, also known as ballot harvesting law, though that makes it sound like you're stuffing turf builder in your envelope or something. So uh, I think on the first point, the GOP has conceded. They said, you know, we promise these signs saying official are gone. The second point about ballot collection is a bit more complicated. We're recording this on Thursday. This could likely end up uh, in litigation. So we should say, as you pointed out, there is a law that allows ballot harvesting, ballot collection, and the Democrats were all for it. Uh, the Republicans in the legislature didn't vote for it. They howled against it. Uh, they said it cost them the election in some of the midterm races in 2018. So are they now just saying, OK, we can't beat them. We're going to join them? Yeah, this is, as they've built it, their attempt uh, at ballot collection 
it remains to be seen kind of what's the greater effect of this strategically. I mean, you know, the resources that they're going to have to use uh, to defend this possibly in court could have possibly been used just to direct their voters towards existing ballot drop boxes. There are tons of official ballot drop boxes up and down the state. You can Google KQED early voting to find a list and find a way to find ones near you. So it's not clear whether they're getting new votes that otherwise wouldn't have been captured in the existing collection and voting methods throughout the state. Is this really a wise use of resources on the part of the GOP? I mean, yeah, I talked to Paul Mitchell today who does, for both parties, uh, he's like a voter data guru, and he said uh, by his count there was like 98 turned in in Fresno, and he's like, I would bet every one of those was probably someone who already would have voted GOP. So what is this? Is it a political stunt to draw attention to ballot harvesting? It is. Is it, a, it, from their perspective, good faith effort on the GOP side to really make sure that people vote? I mean, it because it's it's a little confusing. I mean, there's the ballot harvesting issue, and then there's everything we've been hearing from the president, which is go to the polls, don't vote early, mail voter, you know, mail voting is problematic. Um, none of that's true. It's fine. It's it's secure. But like, like, what do you what what's the political angle here if there is one? Right. I mean, I think you hit it on the head with this kind of strange dichotomy. I think as far as this strategy, to me, it's kind of a halfway between a ballot harvesting troll and and kind of a legitimate operation that they were trying to get out the vote with. But it raises this question of, look, vote by mail, the expansion of vote by mail in California this year, sending every voter a ballot was a bipartisan effort. There was, you know, half a dozen Republicans in the assembly who supported this. Even legislators who were upset that this initially was uh, pursued through an executive order ultimately supported the legislation. Now, take that in comparison to national Republicans who have spent most of the year saying, you know, vote by mail is filled with fraud. It's kind of created this strange uh, paradigm for the GOP where on one hand they have to be like, look, as our uh, president is saying, vote by mail is fraudulent. But hey, while you're in the office, stick your ballot in here. We'll take it for you. And I think that sets up this strange, uh, you know, reflex of having to defend national Republicans when many California Republicans were comfortable with vote by mail. And Scott, I know you talked to many uh, election officials in red counties who have used, you know, been using vote by mail for years. And so it's it's a weird interplay of the National Republican Party taking this really strong stance that I think ultimately has hurt the state and local Republican parties politically. So the Secretary of State and the Attorney General sent this cease and desist letter to the California Republican Party, and they pushed back. They sent back their own letter and say, first of all, you're misreading the law. We think these boxes that we've put up are perfectly uh, legal under the rules that you've established. They did acknowledge you know, that the labeling could have been a little better, although they said we didn't do that. It was somebody at the local level who put official on those boxes. But where does that leave things? I mean, do you get the sense that the Republican Party is going to maybe expand this beyond these three contested congressional districts? Right. Well, I think where it leaves things is uh, there clearly is this disagreement over whether these ballots can count if they don't have the signature of the ballot collector. That is, if you're you know, handing your ballot to, to someone to turn in, handing it to a quote unquote harvester, the law says that ballot can still count even if it doesn't have a signature. So the GOP's legal case is strong uh, in that sense. I think you know one thing to be clear is that both parties in this case want these votes to be counted. I think that stands uh, in total opposition to the legitimate voter suppression we are seeing around the country when it comes to efforts to stop vote by mail. In this case, 
the Republicans were not setting up these boxes. Uh, there's no evidence they were setting up these boxes to throw the ballots away. And even Democrats who are opposing these activities say, we want to make sure that if these ballots, you know, have a signature on them, that we get them signed and counted. So I think, you know, I, not to call anybody out, but I was, you have seen headlines this week saying, you know, this whole operation is threatening the state's election integrity. I mean, come on now. There's both both parties in this situation want to get these votes counted. I mean, let's go a little deeper on that guy. Like, I feel because it does feel like this is kind of much ado about nothing in the sense that, to your point, everyone wants these ballots counted. Everybody's trying to encourage voter participation. And it's so different here. I mean, you do have, sure, some of the rhetoric between the parties. But I think, you know, historically, until recent years, Republicans and more conservative voters were generally the ones who voted by mail. Right. So, like, can we just sort of put will you put California in the context of the national conversation around voting access? I mean, we have a pretty good system set up here, right? Yeah, and I would say that in in some respects, it's the victim of its own success and that California has tried so hard to expand options for voters and make it as easy as possible that rules are changed, you know, every election. And in this case, with the coronavirus pandemic, the huge effort to make sure there's not crowding at the polls, there are a lot of changes to the way the election is being carried out. But I think the goal in each of those changes has been to make it easier for people to vote. You're seeing in places like Texas, you know, a real effort, uh, you know, both in the legislature and through the courts to limit ways in which people can vote by mail. In California, there's some counties, mostly rural counties, that only vote by mail. Um, And, you know, there's red counties that have very high participation in terms of vote by mail. So it has never really been a partisan thing in California, certainly, though, on the national level this year vote by mail has become partisan. All right, guys, thank you so much for all of your reporting and uh, insight. And we'll let you go now. All right. Thanks so much. See you, guy. All right. We're going to take a short break. And when we come back, we'll be joined by political communications professor Dan Schnur. You're listening to Political Breakdown from KQED Public Radio. I'm Sasha Coca, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse Golden State. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. The land of milk and honey. That's where you go to Sunshine State. But we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member. You get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. Welcome back to Political Breakdown. I'm Marisa Lagos here with Scott Schaefer. Our guest today is Dan Schnur. He is a political communications professor at both UC Berkeley and the University of Southern California. So he knows something about getting people to get along who may not otherwise. Dan Schnur, welcome to The Breakdown. Marisa, thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. 
So I know you don't like to talk about your past life all that much, but we should tell our listeners that there's a reason we called you. It's not just because you're a professor. You worked in GOP politics for many years. You swore that off. You ran as a nonpartisan candidate for the Secretary of State in 2014. So you understand the political universe, not just from inside of a classroom. Is that fair? Well, I, I switched to no party preference about 10 years ago. I like to say, if you need a guy to run political campaigns using fax machines, that's my era. <laughs> <laughs> all right. We won't hold it against you. So first of all, can you just react to what we were talking about? What's your thoughts on this whole ballot drop box dust up and uh, whether there's any political sort of traction to gain on either side? Um, lots of sound and fury, lots of sound and fury signifying little. Um, there is a marginal benefit for Republicans because particularly in these contested congressional districts, every vote does count. And if they can turn out their base in what otherwise might be a discouraging, discouraging national election season for them, then there might be some added benefit there. But I don't think it's an immense one. And, um, and while the law on it is somewhat murky, uh, I think the reaction from the other side has been somewhat of an overreaction. So what do you think, Dan? Is this sort of a ham-handed attempt to sort of catch up to the Democrats, or are they trying to score political points? I mean, the president was encouraging them on, uh, you know, rah, rah, go with the, the drop boxes. What, what do you make of the strategy here? Well, as, as Guy pointed out correctly, is Republicans spent a few years maligning this new rule until they realized it was working against them. So I don't think there was any subterfusion involved. I think they were just trying to be clever maybe in retrospect a little bit too clever by half in taking a rule that the Democrats had forced on them and trying to find a way to push it forward. The fact that they backed off calling it a quote unquote official box would seem to you know, get rid of most of the controversy. But I think they had just I, I think it was honestly just an effort on the Republicans part to take advantage of a rule a little bit more. The Democrats had already been using to their benefit. So, Dan, I mean, Step back. I kind of want to ask you the same question I asked Guy, which is like, where do we sit in the universe of voting access, voting rights, and just like the ability for a legitimate free and fair election in California? What what What's your take on how things are going here coming into what everyone keeps saying is the biggest election of our lifetime? We'll see if that's true or not, but we'll see. Look, I think California is relatively well prepared only because we've been doing mail balloting in a much in a, in a, in a much uh, broader way than most states have. If you're a state that's had mail voting sort of as an afterthought for the last several years, then getting ready for an onslaught this October and November is a really big heavy lift. And while it won't be flawless here, it never has been, it never will be, this is a state that if only because of past experience is relatively well equipped by it. And if Californians like voters everywhere else do everything they can to vote early, either by mail or at one of the voting centers, my guess is that we're going to be the least of the national electorate's worry come election night. Dan, of course, the Secretary of State, Alex Padilla, is at the center of this, along with the Attorney General, who is suing the GOP. Uh, and as Marisa mentioned, you ran a few years ago as a no-party preference candidate for Secretary of State. And, you know, I've been doing some reporting this past week about maybe, maybe that's a good idea. You know, maybe we should have a nonpartisan secretary of state instead of one who, like Alex Padilla, gets really involved with endorsements and uh, political disputes. What are your thoughts about that? I mean, obviously, you sort of must think it's a good idea or you wouldn't have run as a nonpartisan. 
I think it's an incredible idea. I think it's an extraordinary idea. <laughs> why didn't those, that up those for him. damn voters, why didn't they know that? Precisely. Um, look, th this is not a criticism of, of Alex, not in the slightest. Um, I got to know him fairly well during that campaign. I have a great deal of respect for him. But any partisan, whether it's a registered Democrat or a registered Republican holding the job of chief elections officer, has two jobs simultaneously. One is to be an absolutely impartial, neutral arbiter, as John Roberts likes to say, call balls and strikes without giving favor to either side. The other is Alex Padilla, nothing wrong with this, just like Republican Bruce McPherson back in the day, is a partisan also. And even if you do as good a job as possible, as both Alex and Bruce did, Alex does, Bruce did, of separating out the nonpartisan official responsibilities from your partisan affiliations, there's a perception challenge. And uh, Alex may be, he'll know this much better than I do, he may be completely right in the criticisms he's leveling against the Republican Party, but because he's a registered Democrat, it's going to be taken in that context. And it's certainly not going to be me, but in the future, I think if California voters did decide that they wanted the arbiter of free and fair and even-handed elections to be a member of neither major party, I think that would be a good step to take. So you don't see Padilla as being more partisan or more involved in democratic politics, as some you know people do, uh, who are sort of neutral, good government types. They say he, you know, for example, uh, he endorsed Gavin Newsom for governor in 2017. Very early in that process, there was still a primary. Um, you, you, but you don't really see it that way, or you don't think it matters. Um, it, it's, it's his prerogative. He didn't pretend that he wasn't a Democrat when he ran. Uh, voters supported him, uh, either in spite of that or because of that. And so the fact that he is now endorsing other Democratic candidates and engaging in partisan political activity um, is should not be surprising. Like I said, I think if the office were a nonpartisan one, like many mayors, like many county supervisors, then I think you, you, you do create a greater level of confidence, but you can't fault him for doing the job the way it was designed. In the past, other secretaries of state have been somewhat more circumspect in this regard. I think that's the better way to do it, but I don't think you can criticize him for being a loud and proud member of the party that he ran for the office under. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Political Breakdown from KQED Public Radio. I'm Marisa Lagos here with Scott Schaefer. Today we are talking voting and elections with political communications professor Dan Schnur. He teaches at UC Berkeley and USC. So, Dan, we promised our listeners we would talk about voting. So, I mean, quickly, as someone who um, understands this process very well, tell us, like, everybody's getting these ballots right now, right? Like, what are their options? They can fill them out and then what? Or they can wait and then what? Yeah, do, I mean, do, do you fill yours out right away and vote yeah. early? Tell us about your you voting patterns. <laughs> um, I am more incentivized to do it early this year than I usually am uh, for all sorts of reasons. Um, but look, there's, there's three different ways to do this. One, if you're an old school traditionalist, go to vote on election day and go in person. And this year, as all of your listeners have heard many, many times, but it still bears repeating, is if you're going to vote in person, then take the proper masking and social distancing precautions. Um, it's okay. And bring um, your ballot, right? Your old, yes, it, the mail ballot to turn in? Um, you can't, you, you can, you don't have to. If you're a registered voter, you don't need to bring anything with you, um, except for the mask. Um, second, you can go in many counties in California, these voting centers where you can vote early 
and essentially deposit your mail ballot early on um, if you don't want to wait all the way until Election Day. And if you're going to vote by USPS, if you're going to vote by traditional snail mail, that's just fine. But do it as early as you possibly can. Make sure that you sign the ballot because a lot of them get discarded for not being signed or not being signed appropriately. But whether it's a voting center, whether it's a vote by mail, whether it's an in-person on election day ballot, there's there 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 there's, there there are plenty of ways there are plenty of ways to do it. The one thing you don't want to do is send in your mail ballot um, the day of or a day before the election, because even while California has very forgiving rules for late arriving ballots, no need to tempt fate. Yeah. Right, don't uh, take the risk. Yeah, exactly. you, want, you want to make sure it's postmarked or at least, like you say, maybe just bring it in. Um, uh, election and, night. And to answer your question, Scott, mine goes in the mail this weekend. Okay, good. <laughs> good. Um, so election night, you know, we're uh, we, we're, we're starting to sort of uh, prepare our listeners for it. We, we've been calling it election month, essentially, and to prepare people for not knowing the results, especially of those close elections, slow, close races um, on election night. What, what do you expect? You know, a lot of times these expectations just turn out to be completely wrong. We'll know exactly what happened on, at midnight. Uh, but what, what's your sense of things? Well, I have a, uh, I, I ran a webinar down in Los Angeles called Politics in the Time of Coronavirus. And my producers have gotten me a coffee mug that says no to predictions, yes to coffee. I, I learned three years, 11 months and two weeks ago, the danger of making any political predictions. And so I guess I, there's an old uh, Yiddish proverb that you probably know, Scott, hope for the best expect the worst. I think everybody, if everybody does everything as they should, the way they should, we'll be just fine. And if the worst thing that happens is we wait a day or two or 10 for results, that's not a bad thing. It's a perfectly acceptable thing. Um, but I don't know that I'm ready to predict that yet. Uh, Padilla, our Alex Padilla, our Secretary of State, now instead of referring to election day or even election week, refers to election season. And I think, look, anybody who listens to a show like your guys is someone who's obviously unusually well-informed about politics. So the overwhelming majority of your listeners understand that not having results on election night is not a pro- is not a worry. It's not a problem. It's not a cause for unrest or panic. But if I can, tell your friends, tell your neighbors, tell your coworkers, tell your family members, the more people who know that this could go days or even weeks after the election, the more likely it is we get to the other side without too much tumult. I mean, it does seem like the big question mark and potential problem here is the presidential election, right? We have in California gotten far more used to seeing congressional races flip. I mean, heck, one of the GOP uh, apparent winners went to the orientation last year and then lost the election a few days later (laughs) in Congress. She's still in the photo. You know, but we've seen this whole thing become so partisan, right? You have a president who refuses to commit to a peaceful transfer of power. You have a Supreme Court nominee who says she won't weigh in on whether a president should commit to that. I mean, are you, I don't know, are you worried? I'm a little worried about our democracy right now. I can't lie. Well, I'd say this, Marisa, um, it's broken, but it's fixable. But it took a long time for us to get this far down. It's going to take a while for us to get that far out, back far out. For those of you who are concerned, Marisa or others, for those of you who really do worry, as I do frequently, about the extraordinary polarization, the hyperpolar, the hyperpartisanship, the division and nastiness in our politics, let me recommend a couple of books. 
I'm going to recommend number one, The Soul of America by John Meacham, the historian. This is a book that came out in 2017. And his point is, is this is nothing new. We've had these periods of abject divisiveness in this country since before we were a country. And the book does a great job of telling us how to get through it. Two books that I assigned to my classes, uh, both at Cal and SC this semester, which I added for the first time. One is a book called Why We're Polarized by the progressive journalist Ezra Klein. The other is a book called Them by the Republican Senator Ben Sass. And the great news is they're, they're essentially the same book from opposite ends of the political <laughs> spectrum, both talking about why we've gotten this way and how we get past it. And if you'd be willing, I'd love to come back and talk with you about it in a little bit more detail some other time, because I think there's a lot of things that people of goodwill, even hardline committed partisans can do to help us knit this back together. Dan, I know you got to go soon, but uh, just quick question about the SCOTUS hearings uh, for uh, Judge Barrett. Uh, do you think that either side is going to get a net positive out of this going into the election? Um, no. I think both both Republicans and Democrats understand that having a confirmation hearing this close to Election Day, um, particularly given the fact that the hearings themselves are such a foregone conclusion, um, are not going to change any voters' minds. Rather, what the Barrett confirmation hearings have been from the beginning is a contest to see who can use the hearings in the nomination to motivate their vote base more. Will Trump be successful in motivating religious conservatives in upper, the upper Midwest to turn out in greater numbers because they're reminded of the importance of conservative judicial appointments? Possibly. Will Biden be successful in motivating Democrats to turn out progressives because they're so angered at this process? Um, historically, Republicans have generally done a better job of leveraging judicial appointments to their benefit. This year, Scott, it looks like a jump ball. All right. We're going to leave it there. Dan Schnur, political communications professor at USC and Cal. Thank you for all of your wisdom today. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. And your reading list. And your reading list. Go out and read those books. Um, all right, Scott, we're going to switch gears for the last couple minutes of the show. Let's talk about our two U.S. senators who are in the news this week for wow. completely different reasons. Totally do you want to start with the senior senator, Diane Feinstein? Tell yeah. us. The, yeah. So, you, saw... you know, you, you did reporting, Marisa, on, uh, you know, some concerns among Democrats, especially on the left, as to whether or not at age 87 and somebody who's always been very collegial, whether she was up to the task of sort of leading the charge uh, against uh, Judge Barrett. Uh, I think, you know, the, the, the hearing ended today with her effusive praise of Lindsey Graham, the chair of the committee, who's actually running in a very tight race for the Senate. You know, I, it's so hard. To, I, I, on the one hand, I, I appreciate her sort of hearkening back to the days when things were more collegial. On the other hand, I just don't know if, if, if she's just, you know, sort of misreading the room in terms of the moment. Yeah, I mean, I think in terms of her performance during the hearing, she did what Democrats needed, right? She stuck to the script. She talked about the ACA. She talked about health care. Um, she didn't go too hard or too soft, you could probably say, on Coney Barrett, although I think some people might disagree. Um, I, but it does seem like this is only adding fuel to the flames. I mean, I think this is really only going to become a problem for her if Democrats take the Senate. And there's going to be a lot of pressure from the left to not allow her to chair that Judiciary Committee. It's very important. And Republicans have used it extremely effectively. Well, and I you know, just watching the other senators, Dick Durbin of Illinois, uh, Sheldon Whitehouse of Rhode Chris Island. Coons. Chris Coons. Yeah. Chris Coons. You know, they were really good. And they were good on their feet. Uh, Cory Booker, to a certain extent as yeah. well. 
And you know, you know, as you said at the beginning there, Dianne Feinstein stuck to the script. But I think what the Democrats maybe need is somebody who doesn't need a script quite yeah, as much, you know, like her uh, colleague <laughs> Kamala Harris, who's on the vice presidential ticket, obviously, um, and I think had a pretty successful line of questioning with Coney Barrett. Uh, just a couple minutes left, Scott, but she took herself off the campaign trail today after a few members of her, well, her communications director and someone on the flight crew on her uh, uh, who had been flying with her uh, tested positive for COVID-19. Um, any thoughts about whether this is going to impact the Biden campaign that much? I mean, half of what they're doing is remote anyway, right? Yeah, exactly. And I think, you know, her husband, Doug, is off campaigning somewhere today, I think. And uh, she'll continue doing what she does online. You know, the New York Times had an article this week about how adding her to the ticket not only did it solidify support among black voters and Indian American voters, but the fundraising like mm -hmm. went through the roof, you know. And so I think she'll be able to add what she's added to the ticket, you know, w even without going, you know, leaving for a few days, doing it remotely. You know, and it just shows you like how much the pandemic has changed uh, this campaign, you know, where something like this, the inability to really go out and campaign really, you know, it may not matter that much. No, and I think it's also like a very clear message to the public that the Biden-Harris campaign is trying to send here, right? Which is that we take this virus seriously. We want to fix it. It's in clear contrast to how President Trump has treated COVID-19 even since he contracted it. Um, I will say, I'm not even sure how to describe this, but we were laughing because there was a pretty funny moment when she was on Rachel Maddow this week where <laughs> she was asked whether she saw the fly on Vice President Pence's head during the debate. And she sort of non-verbally indicated that she had and that she just decided not to say anything. And to me, you know, we both covered her for like 15 years, Scott. That was very sort of vintage Kamala Harris. It was, although I was thinking that wouldn't have worked on radio. No, <laughs> You could see wouldn't. her facial expressions <laughs> and it said, yeah, I did see it. But, you know, silence wouldn't have worked on the radio. But yeah, no, that was, that was very funny. Uh, and, uh, you know, she's, uh, I think she's feeling pretty good about where things stand right now. And, you know, I think she's got pretty good reason to. She is, um, we'll see. I mean, I think that, that, Things have changed so dramatically in this race so quickly over the last few weeks. It is really hard to make any predictions about where we'll be in a week or two. Um, one thing is clear, though, on the comedy era, which is that angle, which is that Maya Rudolph really has Kamala Harris down. I encourage people to just watch her uh, nonverbal cues as they were on, on <laughs> yes. SNL. Must watch. All right. We're going to leave it there. Um, thank you so much for joining us. That's going to do it for this edition of Political Breakdown. We're a production of KQED Public Radio. And don't forget, you can go to kqed.org slash elections and find our nonpartisan election guide and all of our election coverage. Our producer and guest today, Guy Marzarati. Our engineer is Katie McMurrin. KQED's team includes Holly Kernan, Ethan Tovin Lindsay, Vinnie Tong, Erica Aguilar, and Jonathan Blakely. I'm Scott Schaefer. You can follow me on Twitter. I'm at Scott Schaefer. And I'm Maurice Lagos. You can find me on Twitter at MLagos. Thanks for listening and have a great night. Do you love learning about the San Francisco Bay Area? It's history, it's people, it's unique blend of cultures? Then you should check out The Bay Curious Book. I'm Katrina Schwartz, editor and producer on The Bay Curious Podcast, and I'm here to let you know that for the month of May, we've worked out a sweet deal for KQED podcast listeners. Right now, you can get The Bay Curious ebook for $1.99. That's right, $1.99. Just search for Bay Curious wherever you get your ebooks or find a link in our show notes. This offer does expire at the end of the month, though, so you'll want to act on it fast. Happy reading!
Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. 